A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut and loosened. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome aboard. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. This is the 50th podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geberer here with this 50th podcast. And I want to start off by thanking those involved, first of all, the producer of the podcast, who wishes to remain anonymous, but it would be impossible to have any of this done without the producer. It's not just input, it's actually everything involved. Um, he does it all, and not only him, but there's other uh, production staff, marketing, spreading it around. And thank you all for everything that you do to make Jewish History Soundbites happen. And of course, you, the listeners, to thank you for being there to listen. The volume of listeners is, uh, is, is, a, is simply astounding, beyond any expectations I had or anyone else had when we started off. And um, close to something like 20,000 listens altogether of, uh, since we started. And it's not just the volume of listens, but it's also the quality of listeners that we have. Um, the feedback, the comments, the questions, the sources... The additional sources now, a triumphant Israeli army have been sending me um, all kinds of great Mara McCoymas essays and articles and suggestions of future topics and places to research and really enriching the whole dialogue and the topic. And of course, maybe especially so critique, um, corrections and places that I've made mistakes or that needs critiqued in content or style. And I appreciate that as well, of course anything in all the comments. So thank you all the listeners. Um, and in honor of this uh, 50th uh, podcast, this momentous occasion of Jewish History Soundbites, we're going to launch a new series. And this series is going to be in addition to the regular podcast, besides for the regular ones, which I'm going to continue. But we're going to have also a longer series. Both each uh, episode is going to be a bit longer. And plus, it's going to be an ongoing series. And the topic of this series is going to be entitled Rabbis and Zionism. And what that means would be a examining throughout the ages the position of rabbinical figures vis-a-vis Zionism, the Zionist movement, mass aliyah, mass movement, Eretz Yisrael, nationalism, 
um, and all the different various positions that have been taken up by different rabbinical leaders throughout time. And this is quite a, um, a topic um, to, to be able to examine um, both the context of the times as well as the position that different leaders took on it and how they went about um, doing that. And that's something that, um, that should be a, quite an interesting series. So I want to open up this, this um, topic uh, before I give a background and an overview. And I think most of this episode is going to be devoted just to background and overview to be able to get our feet wet to the topic. And only in the next um, installment will I be able to get really into the story itself. But today will be more devoted to the background and the overview. But before even I get to the background and the overview, I want to share a story, which is very often how I like to start um, these topics, a story, a personal story of something that happened to me um, in my capacity as a tour guide in Yad Vashem. Um, Yad Vashem, and as a tour guide, I'm a tour guide there. I also lecture for Yad Vashem, and I'm involved in research. I interview survivors as well. Do several things for this noble institution, and one of, and of course, it's it's uh, being that I have somewhat of a proficiency in Hebrew as well as English, so I get. I know, and I'm religious, and I can also deal with people who are not religious quite easily. So therefore, I get a nice, real variety of groups. I have Jews and non-Jews, religious and secular, Israelis and Americans, all countries, really. Um, So you might have one day a group from Tel Aviv, a secular high school. The next day, you'll have a group of Hasidim. The next day, you'll have a group of non-Jews from Germany or China. The next day, a group from the Israeli army. Um, and the next day, uh, an American yeshiva was here. So really, there's uh, it could be every type of variety of group. So uh, very often, I'll have a secular Israeli high school. Every secular Israeli high school comes to Yad Vashem at some point during the 11th or 12th grade when they're studying Jewish history. And this particular high school was a quality high school from the Tel Aviv area. And the teacher, who was the history teacher of this, this class, um, I was to lecture them in, the, in a classroom in Yad Vashem before we went into the museum, um, into the International School of uh, Holocaust Studies, it's officially called, but that doesn't really make a difference. In any event, um, so the the topic is chosen by the school. We don't get to choose the topic, and we just have to present the lecture, but they get to choose the topic. And what they wanted was a background before we went into the museum, which is about the Holocaust, the background would, the title that they wanted, and this would give them a background of the life before the Holocaust. The, the title of the lecture was 800 Years of Polish Jewish History. In other words, 800 years that Jews lived in Poland. It's slightly inaccurate. It was close to 1,000 years that we lived in Poland, which is really Eastern Europe, not just Poland. It's Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, the whole area of Eastern Europe. And, um, and I start off by talking about in this lecture, um, about how Jews got to Poland in the first place. And I started talking about the pogroms that, that occurred in Ashkenaz and Germany, the Crusades, expulsions, um, Germany, France, and the Middle Ages, and how they started to shift east towards Poland. And the teacher who's listening to the lecture, and he raises his hand, which kind of surprised me. Usually they stay quiet. They let the students raise their hand. And he says, why didn't they go to Eretz Yisrael? Why didn't they go to Israel? And, you know, I said, uh, well, well, 
it wasn't even an option. Eretz Yisrael, for mass immigration at that time, it simply wasn't an option. It was not economically developed. The, the rulers of the country was problematic. It was after the Crusader period. It just wasn't feasible for mass immigration. The, you know, for many, many different sociological and economic and cultural and technical <laughs> reasons. So he says to me, you know, he's, he's a really, really secular guy. This is a really secular school. And I guess I didn't pick up on the fact that many secular are on the left side of the political spectrum, and which he was, which he subsequently clarified. And he said to me, no, I want you to tell them about the shalosh shvuot. I want you to tell them about the three oaths, the three shvuas that the Gemara Ksubis talks about, about how it's, it's uh, forbidden for the Jews to return in mass, mass aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, which we'll discuss obviously soon, and for them to uh, rebel against the nations of the world in their exile, and for the nations of the world not to uh, not to um, torture them and trouble them too much throughout the exile. So two on on the Jewish people and one for the nations of the world. And I was completely caught off guard. That is completely not the direction I had planned on taking this lecture because absolutely irrelevant to the topic that I was discussing. So I said so. I was in front of his students. I was trying to be as polite as possible. I said, I don't think that's relevant to our discussion. A, uh, we're talking about the history of Jewish Poland. We're talking about the reasons for pro or anti-Aliyah during the Middle Ages. And B, in my capacity as a tour guide Yad Vashem, I don't think it's uh, appropriate for me to get into a theological debate and to a religious discussion. I'm a historian. I'm a historian of Jews in Eastern Europe, and I don't think this is appropriate for us to discuss. And he insisted. He said, no, I think it's important for my students to hear. I went into it very briefly. That's not for now. And afterwards, afterwards, during a break later on in the day, I, I, he discussed it with me privately. He said, as soon as I saw you, I got excited that you were our tour guide. Meaning when I saw it, when someone, a secular person from Tel Aviv says it's to someone who looks like me, as soon as I saw you, he means as soon as I saw a religious-looking Jew. And um, I got excited because I feel like there's, my students hear too much nationalism, which what he means is right, uh, right-wing politics. Um, and I feel that they should, they should understand more of the complexity. By complexity, he means more of the left side of the spectrum. And I said, as soon as I saw you, I knew that you're not going to talk nationalism. And I wanted you to explain the position of the the three oaths, the Shalosh voice, and why it's not so simple nationalism, and why it's not so simple to come back to Eretz Yisrael, and, and, you, and it was important for them to hear, and I thank you for sharing that. So that's, that's what it was. So we have here an interesting story, and why did I choose this story to introduce the topic? Is because there's a lot of complexities here, that people see it, that is throughout the period of Jewish history. After every expulsion, the question arises, why didn't the Jews return to Eretz Yisrael? What role do these Shalosh Vuas play in the equation? In the Middle Ages, there was no nationalism, there was no political Zionism. What in the world is he talking about? And the fact that a secular Jew can look at the Shalosh Vuas and say, hey, that's left-wing ideology, I identify with that, which also came up in the media recently, by the way, if anyone's following the Israeli elections, it also was brought up recently by one of the leading candidates um, on the left side of the spectrum. What's going on? What 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 is the position of the Torah on this, and what is uh, and and how did it play its role in history? So, if you came to this podcast to hear me explain the position of the Torah on this, then unfortunately, I'm going to disappoint you because 
I don't explain positions of the Torah. I'm not a Talmud Chacham, and I'm not a rabbi, and I'm not about to lead a theological discussion, nor a Torah discussion. Not only am I not qualified to do so, but there are others out there who are much more qualified to do so. I, I uh, uh, profess to have some sort of a knowledge of history, and therefore the whole discussion that I'm going to talk about is not going to be about philosophy, it's not going to be about the Torah, it's not going to be about theology, and hopefully it's not going to be about politics either. I'm going to try to steer, steer far away as I can from politics, even in the historical sense, perhaps a little bit briefly in the historical sense, but definitely not in the contemporary sense, What we're going to do is a historical journey. I'm going to describe the historical processes of how these things developed and what were the different positions across the Jewish spectrum, especially the religious Jewish spectrum, especially the rabbinical spectrum, as a historical process, as a narrative, as a story, not as a rabbinical discussion, not as a Torah discussion. So that's the the idea that I'm going to try to do here. And really... um, there's, there's, what's important to understand is that things developed over time. There's really different periods of time, and I want to divide it into three specific periods of time. There's the long, 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 long period of time that's the pre-Zionist movement. Before there was a Zionist movement altogether, and that starts, I guess, technically from the time that the second base of Mikdash was, de- was destroyed and the Jewish people were exiled from their land. Um, That's essentially the first period of time. Um, What is the position of the rabbis about returning to Eretz Yisrael as an individual, as a group, as a mass? Um, Were there different positions? Was it ever even an option? And that's a good question, and that's a good story in itself. So that's one period of time that needs to be discussed. There's a second period of time that's during the time of the Zionist movement, the Tnu'ah HaYitzionit, the, the Zionist movement, which we'll discuss when it was founded, why it was founded, and what were the rabbinical reactions at that time. The support, ambivalence, being against it, to what extreme to be against it, and that's a period of time that exists from the rise of the Zionist movement as a movement of nationalism, of Jewish nationalism, as a nation, to form a nation in a political sense also, to return to their uh, homeland of Israel. And that's the second period of time. The third period of time is when the reality of the state of Israel is already there. It's after the founding of the state. It's also, and this is important to keep in context, after the Holocaust, which changes a lot on the Jewish scene, and it changes how people see things, including the rabbinical leadership, and especially the fact that the state of Israel becomes a reality. So how do you deal with the reality? Uh, There's different types of opposition that you can have to deal with something that's theoretical and hypothetical and a discussion on the table than dealing with something that's really a reality that exists and when you have to have practical considerations as well. So those are really the three periods of time that we're going to discuss. And therefore, things change over that time. And rabbinical positions change, and they evolve. So not everything is the same, and not everything is also comparable. To be able to extrapolate from a rabbinical position from one period of time to another might be problematic and speculative, um, which is always a danger when studying history to start speculating what would have happened had it been during a different time. Um, There's also the different locations Um, What rabbinical leaders held inside the land of Israel at any of those periods of time might be different 
than what was outside the land of Israel, outside of Eretz Yisrael. It is also the difference between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Eastern Europe was the center of Jewish life. Western Europe, the Jews were in a minority. There's a difference in the levels of assimilation in between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. Also different periods of time. Um, the Haskalah had different influences. The modern world had different influences on the Jewish people in these places. And that shapes people's philosophies and responses vis-a-vis a movement like Zionism, like returning to Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, the location where the rabbi espoused a specific view is very important. And therefore, that also has an influence on what their position is. There's many different ideas. There's also, by the way, the difference between Asfarim and Ashkenazim. Um, um, many, many, many differences are based on that, on the cultural difference and the cultural backgrounds, on the existence in the Sephardi lands in North Africa and the Middle East, um, as opposed to the Jews of Eastern Europe under the Tsars or under other countries in Europe. It's very different reactions, very different milieu and context, and therefore the Sephardi rabbis' positions might be um, different than Ashkenazi rabbis' positions. And that also has to be examined in this context as well. Um, there's very many, excuse me, many different ideas and ideologies that are going to be examined here. Some talked about Ahavas Eretz Yisrael, loving Eretz Yisrael. Some talked about the mitzvah, doing the mitzvahs that exist in Eretz Yisrael. Other talked about the Torah of Eretz Yisrael. There's an Indian to go learn in Eretz Yisrael because the Torah of Eretz Yisrael is different. Avira, the Eretz Yisrael, Machim. Some talked about, which is this week's Parsha, in fact, the mitzvah, according to some Rishayim, of course, that's part of the point of contention, obviously, throughout the ages, of the mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. And according to the Ramban and other Rishayim, there's a mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. And that comes up in the positions that different rabbinical figures to, uh, raised was is there a mitzvah? How much of a mitzvah? And then there's the other two positions that were espoused, and that is becomes major major issues. Um, is going to Israel part of a messianic process? Are we bringing the geula closer? Is there hiskarvus geula? Is it messianism? Is there action that behooves the Jewish people in their exile to bring? Uh, Mashiach closer by moving back to Israel, by settling the land, by building the land, by building farming settlement in the land, that becomes a major, major issue and point of contention, whether to support or to go against or to be ambivalent towards the Zionist enterprise. Um, another issue is is um, is um, whether whether it's uh, whether it's a practical consideration, whether. Things are too hard in the exile, and Eretz Yisrael seems to be a viable solution. After there's pogroms in any given area, and people are emigrating anyway, people are emigrating to the United States where they're in danger of losing their Yiddishkeit. Perhaps we should encourage them instead to move to Eretz Yisrael, and there we can build religious settlement. So here it's not about the holiness of Eretz Yisrael, it's not even about bringing the Geula, it's a very practical consideration. People are moving and emigrating as a result of specific factors in, let's say, for instance, Tsarist Russia. There's pogroms. Times are hard. The Tsars are no friend of the Jews, especially after 1881. And people are moving. They're emigrating mainly to the United States. And the rabbis start to hear what's happening to the Jews in the United States. And there's a lot of assimilation, Shabbos, all kinds of other things going on, which happened to be going on in the entire Jewish world at that time. But that's a different discussion. 
the uh, movement towards secularization within the entire Jewish people of the 19th century, um, what's incorrectly referred to as the Haskala. Haskala was a factor in the secularization of the Jewish people, people during the 19th century, but it was not the only factor. Um, so that's a very fascinating discussion in itself, which perhaps deserves an entire series. But in any event, there is emigration. There is problems with that immigration because the destination, for the most part, is America. So perhaps Eretz Yisrael would be a different solution. And therefore, it's in a practical sense. So do we see Eretz Yisrael as a practical solution or not? That's another ideology that's espoused. Another issue that comes up is, is there a difference between an individual who decides that he's moving to Eretz Yisrael for whatever reason, messianic, mitzvah, Eretz Yisrael, practical considerations, the economy's good, whatever it is. But he's doing it as an individual. Or is a group, a kvutza, a chabura, a tzibur, the nation, Am Yisrael, is there a difference? And if there is a difference, what's allowed, what's not allowed? And if there is an issue with a group moving, what size constitutes a group? When Menachem Mendel of Etepsk made the alias Talmidei Baal Shem Tev, Menachem Mendel of Etepsk, one of the greatest Talmidim of the Magad of Mizrich, one of the greatest tzaddikim and rabbis in Europe, he moved with 300 Hasidim. Is 300 people a group? Is it a tzibur? Is it Am Yisrael? You know, that's something that needs to be examined as well. What were the different positions about a yachid or a group? Um, once the idea of nationalism is raised. Once the idea of, of um, that it's nationalism, that it's leumiyut, that it's, 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 it's the nation together and we're defining ourselves as a nation and it becomes a cultural thing. Once it becomes political Zionism, once it's about founding a state on political grounds and getting involved with the nations of the world, once it gets, once the secular are involved, then it's a new story. Nationalism itself is a new story because nationalism seemingly is a concept borrowed from the outside world. Do Jews have nationalism? Most traditional Jews in the 19th century in Eastern Europe believed that, that in what Reb Sadia Goyen wrote many, many centuries earlier in Emunais Videis, that the reason that the Jews are a nation is only through the Torah, not through nationalism, not through a country, not through politics not through their flag or identity or their Olympic team. So it was surprising to have nationalism as all of a sudden the new identity of the Jewish people, but nationalism was new for everyone at that time. The reason nationalism rose amongst the Jewish people in the 19th century was because nationalism was rising in the entire world in the 19th century. In olden days, in the Middle Ages, religion defined the non-Jews of Europe much more than anything else. It wasn't about the nation, it was about the church. And most of the wars were about the religion, and all the, and all the issues and rules were completely, nothing else was their identity besides for the church, which is, which is of, of course, the story in itself, and, and, and what, what role religion plays in the Middle Ages, and how that affects the Jews, and, and feudal society, and, and of course, it, it's a whole topic. But nationalism is simply non-existent. So nationalism is new for everyone. So of course it's new for the Jewish people. And therefore, what role does nationalism play? And once it becomes political, it becomes even more problematic. And once it gets a secular flavor to it, then that becomes an issue. Do we go with the secular 
or we they, we stay separate from the secular. And the fact that it's the secular who are taking the initiative, does that make it a problem? Or does it make it not a problem? Because anyways, it's a good thing to do. And these becomes points of contention between different rabbinical figures living at that time. And finally, the last, the last thing I would say, and I think is the most important, because there's three, and if we want to overgeneralize, there's three possible reactions to have. Support, opposition, and those are the two obvious ones. And the non-obvious one, but ultimately becomes the most common, is ambivalence. Ambivalence. I can either support the movement, I can either oppose the movement, or I can be completely ambivalent to the movement. I can ignore it, I don't make it the top of my agenda, I don't talk about it much, I don't educate about it much, I don't have too many official positions. It's kind of a pragmatic approach. Let me deal with it as the problems arise. Let me respond as the problems come up. And this ended up being the position of most of mainstream rabbinical leadership throughout the 19th, 20th, and the 21st centuries, right down to modern times. Um, incredibly enough, many most mainstream positions have never even dealt with the issue up till today. I remember, I always tell people, I was 13 years in Mir Yeshiva, and I never got any education as to what Zionism is and what should be my position about it. And, and uh, my personal position. Obviously, I'm not talking about it. In this series, I will not talk about my personal position whatsoever, not even hint at it, because it's not about me or my personal position. This is about the historical record. But uh, just as a matter of fact, I didn't, I didn't you know, it's not, it's not a topic that's discussed. It's, Bavakam is discussed, and Gittin's discussed, and Musser is somewhat discussed, and other things are. Uh, halacha, to a certain extent. But not not uh, not what the position is vis-a-vis the Zionists. By the way, that has a historical precedent in the Mir Yeshiva in Europe. Um, the Rabbi Rocham Levavitz, the great Mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva, did not allow the discussion of politics, whether pro or anti-Zionism, or whether it was Polish politics. The, you know, the, the the Jewish parties, political parties in Poland, sent representatives to the Polish Parliament. He didn't allow a good Israel politics to penetrate the Yeshiva. Nothing. Politics was not part of the Miriam's position. They've somewhat uh, maintained with measured success uh, up until recent times. And, and the, the, the position of Rabbi Rucham was that it doesn't belong in the yeshiva. And when one of a, and this is recorded in his shmuzin, one of a members of the, he says of a religious party. Now, there are only two in, a religious Jewish party. There's only two in Poland, the Mizrahi and Aguda, so I leave it to your guess. My guess is Aguda, but I don't have any proof to it. Um, they complained to him as representative of the religious Jewish uh, party that in the recent elections to the Polish parliament, they didn't see that the Bacharim and the Mir Yeshiva helped out with the election campaign, and with which, which, they, which, 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 uh, which evidently he expected. Um, um, and Rabbi Rucham did not allow electioneering and the Bacharim to take off Sadarim to run around the country putting up signs and helping the ticket of the religious Jewish party. He didn't allow it. And he had his educational philosophy, he had his way that he wanted to be a mechanechem, and he had his priorities, and this was not something he wanted in the yeshiva for whatever reasons. And this representative of the religious Jewish party complained to him. And he said, how come there were no supporters in your yeshiva? So Yeruchim told him a very sharp line, and he said, I, I did not specifically disallow it, I didn't tell them not to. 
What, I, what, what we do in Mary Shiva is we teach one subject and one subject only. We, we teach Torah. And he said if in their learning of the subject they understood not to support your party, then I guess your party has nothing to do with the subject that was taught in our yeshiva. And if they would have helped, that means that they would have understood that the subject that was taught in the yeshiva is related to your political party. So I guess it's the problem of your political party that it has nothing to do with Torah. That was his response, which was quite sharp. Um, but that was, And that was his position. He's entitled to his, uh, his belief and his position that it doesn't belong in it, and therefore the whole topic was ignored. Um, in, and uh, and uh, ultimately, that, that ended up being a, a somewhat mainstream position was to try to ignore it completely. When, when you had to respond to something, you responded. When you had to be pragmatic or practical, which obviously came up much more in force once the State of Israel was founded, then they had to be somewhat less passive about the phenomenon and respond to it more actively, especially when they can gain something out of it. And uh, the ambivalence becomes a position. It's not opposition. It's not uh, support. Um, ambivalence becomes a position. In fact, um, I read recently an article analyzing Ramram Bloy's, uh, not an article, a book, a uh, recent biography, a fantastic biography by Kimmy Kaplan about Ramram Bloy, and whose yard site was recently, actually. And it said that the fact that he felt the need to respond to everything the Zionist movement and later the State of Israel did meant that he was involved in the Zionist enterprise just as much as the Zionists were, because he felt that it was a major issue and everything required a response and an and opposition. So he is involved in the Zionist enterprise, and it's part of his life and it's part of his world philosophy, just as much as, as the Zionists themselves, just his position is in opposition, whereas ambivalence is a certain removal from the entire subject. So that's the overall the, the, um, the different positions uh, that come up. In fact, uh, they made a joke um, which has a certain element of truth to it, but it's brought down in history books. So histo- uh, jokes that are brought down in history books, maybe they're only funny for historians, but, um, but they said about the Agurisi Stroll in Poland um, that one of the reasons that it didn't achieve a lot of its goals, it fell short of certain goals that it had, which I'm not going to get into at this point, was because they didn't have an official proactive position on many things. What they would do is they ultimately would wait for the Mizrahi to take a position on something, or the secular Zionist parties, or even the Bund, this uh, secular socialist party, which has nothing to do with Zionism, and then they would go against it. Now, once they had a position that they could go against, they had something to talk about and something to do and something to, to discuss with the Knesset and in the Polish parliament in the CM. And they didn't have a, an official proactive position on things they had mainly only positions against, which is overgeneralizing again and again. It was said in uh, humor it's not exactly accurate. They did have many, many proactive positions, and they did a tremendous amount for the Jewish people in Poland before the war, and I'm not uh, absolutely not minimizing their contribution, education, and, and keeping many, uh, many, many things going in Poland in the interwar period, which is definitely a story in itself, but, uh, but it just gives a certain idea of the, um, ambi- the, the ambivalence in the first sense and only coming out um, in, in opposition when, when the need arises. So that's, that's basically the, the position. So if we want to get our feet wet a, a, a little bit into the actual story itself, um, 
the idea of coming to Eretz Yisrael, of moving, excuse me, of um, of P- Jews coming back to Eretz Yisrael throughout the exile, the idea exists, and it, it's it's full in the historical record. Um, there were always Jews living in Eretz Yisrael without a single break from the time of the Churban. At times, extremely small Jewish communities, at times not in Yerushalayim, in other parts of Eretz Yisrael, Akko, Tveria, Hebron, Galil during the Amirayim times. Um, there always was a Jewish presence. And not only was there always a Jewish presence, but there always was an idea from time to time of individuals or small groups that came to Eretz Yisrael to live because they wanted to. And it was for many different reasons, some of which I enumerated earlier. Um, in 1267, the Ramban, uh, Ramban, one of the greatest uh, leaders of the Jewish people of all time, he moves to Eretz Yisrael. In modern-day uh, language, we would say he made Aliyah in his old age, in his retirement age. He didn't, he didn't um, leave Spain by choice. He was kind of forced to after the debate he had. King James of Aragon allowed him to say whatever he wanted against the church to disprove them, which was a rare uh, um, um, occurrence that, that you'd be allowed to have a freedom of speech to explain the Jewish position in a theological debate with the Catholic Church. Because of that, the Catholic Church was pretty upset and he was forced to leave Spain. But he could have moved anywhere. He could have moved to, uh, to Egypt, to Italy, to Greece, to many other countries that allowed Jews to live at the time. Um, Turkey, and he decides to move to Yisrael. So he lives there, and he actually rebuilds the Jewish community in Yerushalayim, which had been destroyed by the Crusades. And he builds the Ramban Shul, which to a certain extent still exists today um, in the old city of Yerushalayim. And he lives in Eretz Yisrael. He writes his Pirush and Chumash in Eretz Yisrael, actually. He, um, he writes there one time when he's talking about Kever Rachel, where Yaakov Avinu Buried Rachel Imenu, he writes, Now that I've arrived in Eretz Yisrael and I measured the, dif- di- the, excuse me, the distance um, of, of whatever it was, Beis Lechem, and I see that this is, and this is the distance. So you see that he was actually living in Eretz Yisrael when he wrote the Pirish on Chumash. Um, the many Balei Taisis, because of the Crusades, because of um, the upheavals in Ashkenaz, in Germany, in France, they moved to Eretz Yisrael, mainly to Akko. Um, after the expulsion from Spain, when the Sephardic exiles spread across the world, and the, the, the exile of Sephardic Jewry across the world is a fascinating story about where they settled, why they settled, how far they spread out really to the four corners of the world, they make it to the New World, to Brazil, to the Caribbean, they make it to the Far East, to India, actually even to China, um, they make it everywhere. Um, and one of the places they come to naturally is Eretz Yisrael. The rise of of the Maku, the Makubalim of Tzfas in the 16th century is directly attributed to that. The Beis Yisuf himself um, was four years old when Beis uh, of Cairo was four years old when his parents were expelled from Spain together with him as a child. He's born in Spain, and then uh, you know they, they live mainly in uh, in Turkey, but he eventually moves to Eretz Yisrael. The whole Tzfas Chabura uh, is all the Mari Beirav, the the um, the um, the Al Sheikh, the Shlema uh, Al Kibitz, and all the other ones, all the Makubalim of Tzfas and Tzfas in its heyday in the 16th century was mainly either direct exiles or children or grandchildren of exiles from Spain. So they definitely came and settled it and built it up. Uh, not only that, a fascinating story. 
Um, there was one of the exiles from Spain, one of the greatest Spanish aristocratic Jewish families. It was a woman, in fact. Uh, she was married to a Spanish Jewish aristocrat. Uh, her name was Donna Grazia Mendes Nassi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And her nephew, Don Yosef Nassi, was famous. Um, they were exiles from Spain. They were bankers, real estate magnates. Um, very connected eventually with the Turkish authorities. They lived in Rhodes, Greece, Turkey. Um, they owned banks. They had uh, very wealthy, very well connected. And Don and Donna, you know, connotates uh, their uh, aristocratic position. They get a title of nobility. And eventually to help refugees and exiles from Spain, she buys the rights from the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which controlled Eretz Yisrael at the time from the uh, early 15th century and on from the early 1500s, 16th century, excuse me, from the early 1500s and on. And she buys the rights to the city of Tveria and its environs from the Turkish government. She is the owner. She owns the city of Tveria and its environs, and the, the district, in other words, around Tveria. And she settles it with Spanish exiles who had nowhere to go. And she has them develop the land and work it and build up the economy. To the best of my knowledge, this is the first record of Jewish-owned large parcels of land, in other words, more than just a, it's more than just a you know a little a little backyard, a city and its environs uh, that it's owned by a Jew, it's settled by Jews with the intent of settling the land from the time of the Churban. It's an incredible story of Dana Grazia Mendes Nasi, and she does that. And uh, perhaps we'll end off with that, which is. I guess the first time that Jews actually do such a thing, but it's certainly not the last. And um, we'll continue in the next episode to modern times, to the uh, Aliyah first of the Talmidei Baal Shem Tev, the Aliyah of the Talmidei Hagro, the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim, and then eventually what's the, we'll go move back to Eastern Europe where we have the beginnings of the yearnings of coming back to Tzioin, the Mavastre Tzioin, the and the lovers of Zion, and which is the early, early stages of what eventually, ultimately becomes the Zionist movement. And at that point, we have to start talking about what the rabbinical position was. Did they oppose it? Did they support it? Were they ambivalent? Because until now, it was just about giving context and giving support to the idea, um, you know, even though I didn't say it outright, but the idea that the Ramban came to Israel, the Bali Taisis come to Israel, the Beis Yosef, and all his Chabura and Tzvaz comes to Israel means that the idea of individuals or even of small groups coming to Israel is definitely not looked down upon. They had very spiritual reasons for doing it. There doesn't seem to be any rabbinical opposition to what the Ramban did or the Bali Taisis did. In other words, up until now, we're pretty safe for individuals to come if they're expelled from their countries, if they have a reason to come, if they want to come for the Kedush of Eretz Yisrael, for the mitzvahs of Luis Baritz, for mitzvahs Yish of Eretz Yisrael, for any spiritual reason, for, in the case of the Beis Yosef's group, was for the Kabbalah, for the, for the, uh, for the Zohar, for the Kabbalah Sari, which had to do with Messianism and Mashiach and Geula also, but it was mainly for this uh, spiritual and mystical uplift. There definitely doesn't seem to be any opposition at this point, and therefore, when we examine the rabbinical opposition or support or ambivalence, of course, we're examining all sides of rabbinical positions in this context. Um, but up until the modern times, it does not seem to have been any. So this was Yehudi Geber with just through Jewish History Soundbites. 
course, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for any questions, comments, sources, and of course, tours to these places in Eretz Yisrael in Europe to see these places, to hear about these people, exciting trips that I could do with any group that we get together and organize. Um, you can also follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode. Follow us also on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.